Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week. And for those of you who are uh, new to Christian worship, the significance of waving of the palms or calling it Palm Sunday uh, was that it was a symbol of victory. Uh, they would have an ancient practice of waving the palms before a victorious king as he came into the city. And of course, the crucifixion that we celebrate at Easter was not the victory, the form of victory that anybody had expected. Our text for today for our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 21, the first 17 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them as for Jesus to sit on. Very, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, <clears throat> while the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this? Crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it out a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the teachers saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. So as we take a look at this text this morning, we consider the significance of this tremendous victory that was coming in a way that the world did not expect. A power and a kingship unlike any power and king the world had ever seen. Jesus is a king who extends Grace that rescues and restores. But before that rescue and restoration brings comfort, it confronts. He's bringing a kingdom that is upside down and unlike anything that the world has known. And so we want to look at these things this morning. Uh, I've divided it into uh, this text into three things. The first being the king who confronts. Secondly, counterintuitive kingdom. And then thirdly, the king who comforts. So first, let's look at how this King Jesus comes and he confronts. You know, all throughout um, the Gospels, there's many times where Jesus does miracles and he says to the person that he just healed or did the miracle for, 
Um, he says, you know, don't tell anybody that I've done this or don't tell anybody who I am. It's they, sometimes the gospel uh, theologians refer to it as the messianic secret. It's like, why does Jesus keep telling people not to? It's like he doesn't want to get interrupted in his mission. Is it that he is not wanting people to get confused about their agendas and their ideas of what he should be doing as the Messiah versus what he knows he's called to do as the Messiah. There's all these examples of Jesus doing this miraculous work, but then saying, don't tell anyone about it. And here in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the exact opposite happens, where not only is he welcoming the praise, not only is he welcoming the, the, the accolades and the adoration that he is king, not only is he welcoming all of sort of the prophetic implications of everything that everybody's doing, uh, he's instigating it. He's provoking it. This is not a series of events that's sort of naturally unfolding. This is a picture of a sovereign king in complete control over his fate, actively initiating action that is confronting power. Confronting the world, confronting Caesar, confronting the religious leaders. He's forcing everyone's hands through all of these actions to say, you have to make a decision about who I am. He's, he's, he's forcing the religious leaders and the civic leaders to stop him. This is how strongly and aggressively these, these, these moves are that Jesus is, is, uh, is making. And all of these events that take place uh, during the Passion Week, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his crucifixion at the cross, his later resurrection, these are not just sort of haphazard, you know, unplanned, phenomenal events. All of these things are bringing all of Israel's history, millennia of history, to their intended and proper goal. See, Israel's history matters because the creator of the world chose the people of Israel. When they were in bondage and slavery and certain death in Egypt, he chose them so that through them, God would redeem the world. And so the whole Old Testament narrative of people learning and tr to trust God and trying to trust God and failing and, and worshiping other gods... The, the, the cycle of, of idolatry, the cycle of sin, the God's unrelenting grace as despite the failure of his own people, he continues to move in sovereign grace so that through his people, the lineage of Christ would come. All of this history matters. All of this history is significant because Israel's history is a microcosm of salvation's history. Israel's history is a microcosm of God's intention for salvation throughout world history. The exodus is a foreshadowing of our exodus. That the promise of God to Israel means that everyone who would be saved through Jesus Christ, through the lineage of Israel, means that true Israel is bigger than we all thought. That nation and all the other nations, those who come into saving grace. The promise to Israel is relevant and true. It's just it's bigger than everyone thought. The land. Not a small patch of land. 
in the Middle East that's been the subject of war for generations. Not only that, not, the, not just that land, the earth. So Israel's history matters and the people of Israel matter because God chose through them, they are a picture and a microcosm. Their exodus is a picture of our exodus from certain death to life in him, in God, as we turn to Jesus Christ, as we trust in his eventual resurrection that we celebrate uh, in the coming weeks. There was not a smooth flow to salvation history. The entire Old Testament is a massive mess. It's difficult and intimidating to read because there's just a constant uh, failure. We wish that there was sort of a, uh, this crescendo of you know, better and better uh, trusting and service to God and salvation, but it was actually the opposite. And so all of these things that Jesus is doing is intention because God was, is now in the cross, God the incarnate in Jesus Christ. God is radically moving towards doing something totally new through the cross, and yet it's something that has been promised for millennia. Verse 9 gives the Hosanna cry, God save us. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a divine cry. And they're calling him the son of David. And, and there's all of these things converging in this moment where Jesus is publicly receiving this declaration of him as this messianic king and has divine implications. And so oh, this is all very confronting. It's confronting everyone, anyone in any power and any authority is being confronted. And the reaction to being confronted to Jesus is always one of two ways. We either bend our knee to his lordship as king, or we kill him. Because in our own hearts and minds, we are king. Those intimidated by Jesus, because at the core of their soul, they want to grip tightly their own power, have never relinquished the power. They desire to kill Jesus with the power. And so all of this is taking place as Jesus is presenting himself as Savior and Lord, both of these things. Now, there's a a, a Bible teacher. Her name is Barbara Boyd. Most of you, maybe none of you, have heard of Barbara Boyd. But Barbara was a Bible teacher to a young man who many of you heard of named Timothy Keller. And Barbara, when she was teaching about this confronting moment of Jesus, she said it this way. She said, My name is Barbara Boyd. You can't say to me, Come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd. Both of these things are true. And neither can we say, Come in, Savior, stay out, Lord. Come in, Comforter, stay out, King. I talked about this last week, that the modern construct of spirituality, the, 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 the well, I'll just call it, I don't even want to call it evangelicalism. I'm just going to say the, the, the cultural, sort of politicized ideas around Christianity that permeate the church in Canada and America are that I can have sort of this love and union with God, but I have no need for lordship and kingship. So I love the sound of the scandalous grace that saves me apart from my works. And I say, yes, but I want nothing to do with discipleship as though it's 
like App, Apple CarPlay, this add-on feature that I can do or not, not do with. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as Savior and Lord, as the rescuer and also the king. Let's move on to the next thing. After this massive confrontation, we see that everything about how Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom is counterintuitive. The, counter, the counterintuitive king. When Jesus was teaching, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to get into this, but when Jesus was teaching, and most often through parables, uh, he was giving a vision of a life that was upside down all the time. It was never grasping authority. It was laying it down. It was never seeking to rise to the top. It was always this humility and servanthood and service. And it was a constant paradigm shift. Every time Jesus taught about the kingdom, he was constantly not only talking about the kingdom, but he was living out the kingdom. Jesus didn't spend, if you read through the, the, the four gospels, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time just declaring that he was God. He did, certainly. There were moments when he did that, declaring that he was God, declaring that he, that, uh, that he was the Messiah. That's why they crucified him, because it was blasphemy to, he was calling himself God. So he did. But the majority of the time, he wasn't, that wasn't his conversation. The majority of the time, he was talking about his kingdom, his way. This, this life of, of love and of grace and of, and of this outward facing. His, the parables of Jesus were to arrest the imagination. That's why he taught that way. Again, to borrow from Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, the gentleman whose lectures I sat in the other week, he said it this way. Everybody is captive to, to a metaphor. And everybody is living according to a metaphor. It's not just Christians that have an eschatology of how we think everything's going to end. If you're here this morning exploring Christian faith, and maybe right now you would describe yourself as agnostic, you still have an eschatology. You still have a belief in an idea of how it's all going to end. Uh, So everybody is living according to that metaphor of how they think things are going to end. And so whenever Jesus was teaching, he was inviting us into a new metaphor, his kingdom, his way, and everything that Jesus did. Rick mentioned it earlier today during our time of confession. He's the king that stoops. He's kneeling down and he's washing the dirt and the dung off of his disciples' feet. And he's welcoming children at a time where the children were a nuisance and put in the corner until they were able to contribute something valuable to the conversation. And he's giving dignity to women when women were property. And he's uh, giving dignity to the poor when the poor were totally rejected. And he's going around and he's touching people that society said were unclean because he who is righteous, the king, is not made unclean by touching the unclean. He's making everything he touches clean. So it's a totally counterintuitive kingdom. And when he comes in riding on a donkey, this too is counterintuitive because, of course, the image of the king that everybody was familiar with, that's why they grabbed the palm branches and put the clothes down. That wasn't something they did on the spot like a, like a, you know, like a flash mob. And they were like, oh, let's do this thing. This thing was actually, I guess it was like a flash mob because it was like totally planned for millennia that this was going to occur. And so, but he comes in not on a war horse, he comes in on this colt, he comes in on this donkey. It's actually an embarrassing and humiliating kind of an image. But there's a lot going on here. It's, a, it's prophesied in Zechariah, that's the prophecy there. That, that prophecy, when he says it must be fulfilled, that's 500 years before this. But there's another prophecy 
millennia upon millennia before this. Genesis chapter 49. There's a prophecy to the lineage of Judah. Where it says, where, where forever is referred to as the Lion of Judah. And from the lineage of Judah, the scepter would never depart from the lineage of Judah. And the king of Judah would ride in on a colt. This prophecy that's millennia old. And Jesus is doing all this intentionally. And yet it's not, it's really not, it's not the image of political strength, which is what everybody expects and wants. It's not a, a militant man on a war horse, which is what every king and conqueror did in history. A plain-clad man on a donkey. They want Black Stallion. They get Little Sebastian. This is a... It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. By ancient standards, it's totally humiliating. But Jesus shows us we find our God is a God who is willing to humiliate himself. And through his humiliation, we would find salvation. And not only that, but that... The way in which you and I are saved, that word saved, meaning that we become the children of God, that in the end death is not final. It is through humiliation. The way of the cross is humiliation. It's that we confess that we're not God. We confess that we're not the final authority. That the wise guidance of his law guides our life. We bend our knee. We just, we confess that as much as we want to live loving and caring lives, we do not. We fail at this all the time. We confess that in the end we need a savior and we are not our own savior. If politics are in your save if if your politics are your savior, then I hate to break it to you. Actually, I don't hate to break it to you because I care about you. I got to break it to you. Uh, your your god is in the coffin. If politics are your god. I'm not saying be apolitical and don't care what happens in the city. Let's all be involved in civic life in a massive way and bring our gifts to cause the city to flourish and seek the good of the city, but our God is in the coffin if we trust there. And so we're only saved through humiliation. It's the whole way of the cross. And so, this text reminds us of this age-old mismatch between what we think God ought to do for us and what God actually provides for us. They're crying, Son of David! Son of David! Ruling implications. Hosanna! Saving implications. Five days later, crucify him! We understand what it is to be fickle in our faith. Many of us, all, well, should, all of us have been, have failed in ways to trust God and we can identify even with the crowds being fickle. And in this moment, you see this age-old mismatch. God is not working things out according to their plans, their agenda. God has an agenda. Jesus has an agenda. It's not, it can't be reduced to being political. It's global, though it is certainly political. It's certainly political. What he's, what he's doing in the temple is certainly political. He's not flipping tables over in the temple because he's saying, these, these exchange rates are exorbitant. Ugh. That's not what the problem is. The problem is the temple was supposed to be the meeting place of God and his people. And you see that. Jesus restores that because after he cleanses the temple, he's there healing the sick and caring for the, the, the needy. It was supposed to be a meeting place of God and the people. It had become colluding with Caesar. The, the reason why the, the, the religious leaders were ripping the people off was the 
The sick collusion, the greed, the all of the failure that was in the Roman culture had permeated the church. And so it was this it was disgusting to Jesus. And so it's not just like a sporadic, you know, violent outbreak where he kind of loses control and just flips tables. That if that would just be utter weakness, if that's what he did. This is judicial. It's judgment. He's flipping it over, and that's why he's saying this is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. All these sorts of things. But the age-old mismatch between what we want God to do for us and what he actually provides for us. You know, as he rides in on this, this donkey, he's fulfilling multiple prophecy, as I had mentioned before. And then he says something interesting, which is why, again, I say what Jesus is doing is, can't be reduced to political. It's global. And it's eternal. And it's about grace and salvation. But it's political in the sense that with, with the coming kingdom of Jesus in his return is the renewal of all things. Therefore, the Christians, that you and I, the life you and I ought to lead between now and then is we're living in a congruence of that kingdom. Lives of outward-facing love and of care. Not clamoring for power and control at the top, but happy to love our neighbors and live a small life at the bottom. The way of the cross. The shape of the cross. What we see in Jesus. But notice that what Jesus said to the disciples. He says, hey, go and, as a modern reader, it looks like, go steal, some, go steal somebody's uh, colt. Go take a, go take a colt. And we, as moderns, we're like, well, how is this even ethical and good? That you're just supposed to go take some... That's the way of transportation. You know, you watch the, uh, the TV shows all the time and a crime is being committed and a police officer runs into the street and he whips open somebody's car door and he says, I'm a police officer! I'm going to commandeer this vehicle! Throws him into the street drives away. Is that what Jesus is up to? Interestingly, kind of yes. But he's doing it on purpose because in the ancient world, the king, first of all, nobody rode on the king's horse, number one. So he's doing that. Find something that nobody's ridden. So there's that, there's that intentional detail. But the other thing he's doing is He says, tell them that the Lord needs it. Oh, it's so good that Jesus uses that word Lord. If you you read through all four Gospels, there aren't many, many times where Jesus continually saying, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord. But here, he says, tell them that the Lord needs it. In the Greek, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, of course, but the way it's translated in the Greek is, uh, is, um, the kurios needs it. And they had a phrase in first century Rome, kaiser et kurios. Caesar is Lord. So everybody knew. It doesn't tell us that these people are like, oh, the Lord means that Jesus guy, and that's why who needs the, the cult. Okay, he can have it. Jesus goes, tell them the Lord needs it. So what Jesus does is he, he acts like he's the king. He acts like he's the Caesar. He acts like he's the Lord. He acts like he's in charge, because why? He's not acting. He is the sovereign leader. He is the sovereign Lord. So he says, just go find someone in the street. doesn't matter who it is. And when they say, hey, what are you doing? Say to them, the kurios needs this. And that person will be like, yo, if Caesar asked for, if the, if the sovereign ruler asked for my cult, it's theirs. And so Jesus just does the numerous things to assert precisely who he is. But then, of course, he comes in. Not in a manner that any of the other leaders would have, but he comes in this, in this posture of humility on this beast of burden, the one who would come and bear 
all of our burdens. And so we'll uh, move on from here to the king who comforts. He goes into the temple and he flips all the tables and everybody expected politically, everybody expected the Messiah will replace Rome. Nobody expected the Messiah to replace the entire sacrificial system and the temple and the sacrifice and the priests. You see, our king is not only a king who confronts and says, crown me or king, crown me or king me, but he comes in a counterintuitive way that is so attractive of love and of grace and of mercy and of justice. And he, can, and, and he comforts. Imagine being there when this happened. The dust settles after Jesus flips the tables. There's change tinkling around on the stone. There's animals. They're, they're gone. They're out of their pens. They're scurrying all over the place. This text, by the way, put, compresses and puts these things together. It didn't actually happen the same day. First, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He sees what's going on. He sees what's going on the temple. He leaves, and then he comes back, and he goes and clears the temple. I'll give you that simple detail simply because there's a really interesting verse, which I think might be in the Gospel of Mark, where it says, Jesus made a whip. Just marinate on that for a second. He goes in, he sees the collusion with Caesar, he sees the, he sees the disintegration of the, the temple, he sees that it's not God's grace, that, it's not, it's, that they're not caring for the poor, that they're not caring for the needy, that they're not caring for the outcast. In fact, the temple in no way resembles the grace and the love of God who's been moving since Genesis 3 to bring salvation. And, say, and he realizes this is, this is so far off of the gospel script. And there's Jesus... The disciples, can you imagine that? Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm just making a whip here. What? Imagine now you're there. The animals are everywhere. The tables are over. The, every, the whole place is displaced. But you had come to Jerusalem so that you could offer sacrifices at the temple. So now everybody would be wondering, well, where's the sacrifice? And what am I supposed to do for a sacrifice? You've been looking at it. There as he stands in the, as the smoke cloud clears, the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the high priest who would sacrifice himself for the atonement of all of our sin. He is the temple, the greater than the temple, this great king of comfort who's come to sacrifice Himself And that sacrifice, again, for those of you maybe visiting, exploring Christian faith, this, you might not wonder, wonder, like, what's with this sacrifice and why does it matter? And, and maybe the reason that you think that is because you think Jesus' sacrifice was like you're walking along the beach and you're totally fine and your life is great. And then Jesus runs in front of you and jumps in the water into the waves and says, I'm going to do this for you, and drowns himself. And you're like, oh, well, I'm glad you, well, I don't even know what that means because I'm, I'm fine. You don't understand. You're not fine. Humanity's not fine. We're not fine. We know we're not fine. There's no, there's no end to reasons in your newsfeed as you scroll through to people who are angry and outraged because we know the world is not fine. And we need a Savior. And the Savior is not going to be one of us. The Savior has to come outside of us. Our God, our King. 
the one who in a couple of weeks we celebrate the resurrection. If not for the resurrection, nothing I've said today is of any relevance. But because of the resurrection, this is all of extreme relevance. That Jesus Christ is this one who comes and sacrifices himself. He doesn't just go to straighten out the temple. He replaces it. In every way. And so, to borrow from author and uh, research theologian uh, D.A. Carson, he draws attention to the small, quiet miracle. And I want to draw your attention to it as we close. Jesus is riding an unbroken animal. I don't know anything about riding horses because I don't ride horses, but... I do know you don't just hop on a horse that's never been ridden before and ride away. I know that wouldn't work out well. But Jesus gets on this colt, this young colt that nobody's ever ridden, and he rides it into a city where people are waving branches and yelling, yelling and screaming, and children are running back and forth, and they're throwing clothes on the street in front of the animal, and the animal is totally calm and peaceful. And in the midst of all of this commotion... There is this calm under the hands of Jesus, the one who controls nature, who stills the storm. Jesus is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all those who are under his hand. For those of us who are under his hand, there is harmony, there is peace. There is, in this quiet miracle of foreshadowing of the healing and the restoration that is coming to all nature in the future. We don't live in, those, in that time, but that is what is coming with his return. The return of our King. And so while our world groans in great unrest, we find comfort in the Lord of rest. His grace gives us hope. It anchors us. It is the joy that lifts us. It's the endurance that keeps us. It is the peace that quiets us. As the entire world strains its eyes to see through this thick fog that we call the future, with a nervous, anxious uncertainty, My friends, not us. United to Christ, in the midst of all the commotion, our souls are quiet under the sovereign hand of Christ our King. Christ is the greater temple. His spirit indwells you and I. We are his temples, and we are mobile temples. And so now, may we, as his royal priesthood, go out into our city, not with a love of power, but in the power of his great cross-shaped love. Let's pray.